Greetings and welcome to Best Cultural Destinations podcast, People Are Culture. I'm Meg Pierre, host of this interview series, which presents stories of how culture is created, preserved, and shared, one person at a time. People Are Culture podcast celebrates our unique differences and shared human condition and reveals that while the phenomenon of culture is universal, its meaning is personal. Greetings. BCD's People Art Culture podcast is pleased to welcome Peter Lyell Robinson. Peter is editor of the Bradshaw Foundation, which provides an online learning resource that focuses on archaeology, anthropology, and genetic research. The Bradshaw Foundation's primary objective is to discover, document, and preserve ancient rock art around the world as well as promote the study of early mankind's artistic achievements. The foundation funds preservation projects around the world, scientific research and research publication. It carries out its work in collaboration with UNESCO, the Royal Geographic Society, the National Geographic Society, the Rock Art Research Institute in South Africa, and the Trust for African Rock Art to ensure that the programs achieve maximum impact It is a nonprofit based in Geneva. The foundation was co-founded by Peter's father, John Robinson, who was a sculptor, as is Peter. In our conversation, Peter shares the history of the Bradshaw Foundation, an insight and observations about rock art generally, and an overview of the incredible artistry at sites such as Chauvet Cave and in the Kimberley region of Australia, as well as the world's oldest rock art in Africa. In the course of our conversation, Peter touches on universal themes of art making, connectivity, diversity, finding balance, and life as a continuum. Peter, thank you so much for joining Best Cultural Destinations People Art Culture podcast. I'm delighted to have you. It's very uh, nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd love to begin with a question I ask each of my guests. Um, which is, what is culture? How do you define culture? Well, um, I would like to answer that from the perspective of rock art. Um, In a new publication entitled Early Rock Art of the American West by Eckhart Malachy and Ellen Dissenayak, the authors address this concept, and I quote, the metaphor of a surface and a deep structure holds for all known rock art in the world. So superficially, Rock art may differ drastically in style, execution, and and motif, depending on the cultural group that a given marker is born into, just as we speak the language of the group that we are born into. But underneath, in their deep structure, they're governed by innate underlying principles and capacities that are universal aspects of our nature as human beings. So... Um, as, as cultures have invented their own languages, but did not invent the predisposition or, or the ability to speak, similarly, artists and cultures have invented their own arts, but did not invent the predisposition to engage in the art itself. In other words, we are c- all cultural creatures with shared intense experiences. And to stick on the rock art, Um, uh, department, Jean Clot, the eminent French rock art specialist, 
proposes that Homo spiritualis might be a more appropriate term than Homo sapiens, which of course means wise, because of the close bond between spirituality and art. So, so Meg, to finally answer your question, as humans, we are hardwired to a cultural predisposition. Wow. What a comprehensive and thought-provoking answer. And I guess my immediate reaction is um, just an appreciation for um, the idea that, um, you know, our, our need for culture uh, goes back so far and, you know, is just such a part of who we all are. Absolutely. Um, we, are, we are, like I say, we're hardwired to a cultural predisposition. It starts right at the beginning. It's not a, a new fashion. It's, it's hardwired. Mm. And I also love the concept of linking the spirituality um, as a dimension um, of our being. Um, and, and that maybe is a segue into my next question, um, which I think you've you've answered uh, to a large extent, but just to ask the specific question, why does culture matter? Why does culture matter? Well, I think that personally, this can be seen on many levels. Culture generally equates to cooperation and connection and social values, and it also connects to identity. However, if culture is an identity, then there's a chance that cultures can clash. But and we all know about that. But if we look at, at human culture in a positive light, it means we have the chance to tackle issues such as inequality, poverty, pollution, and climate change, all the big issues. One of the, one of the big issues that is often overlooked is our artistic global heritage, i.e. rock art, and its recognition, and therefore its preservation. So to continue this analogy... Uh, with the rock art and and the possibility of a cultural clash. There are never cultural clashes when it comes to rock art. There are no arguments over whose rock art is best or or who says more. Rock art or, or art, let's not forget it is basically art, simply reflects what was going on in that particular region at that particular time. It's it's not a and it's not a separate or sanitized unit. Uh, if we take, for example, the painted cave like Chauvet, it can only really be understood in its particular setting and context. So it's it's located in a landscape, and that's important, we'll come back to that, but whose characteristics are influenced by the ways of the life and the beliefs of, of the people, of the Paleolithic people. So <clears throat> that is culture, that is why it's important. Um, that is so interesting because... Um... I really discovered in spending some time on the website of the Bradshaw Foundation, I don't think I had really appreciated the huge diversity of styles and um, representations. Um, you know, I, I probably am guilty of, of looking at rock art, you know, as, as all being, you know, um, similar. And I was able to see for myself on your site that that was uh, absolutely not the case. And we'll come back to that. Um, but I do want to kind of step back and um, talk about the uh, the foundation kind of from its beginnings. Mm -hmm. And um, that starts with your father, yes. um, John Robinson, um, who was a sculptor, 
uh, as are you. And he was a co-founder of the Bradshaw Foundation, uh, for which you serve as the editor. Right. Um, and your, your father had a very adventurous and accomplished life. And I'd like to focus first on his legacy in terms of his influence on you, uh, both personally and professionally. And I'd love to um, have you share your reflections on him as a person and the highlights of his life and career and how his life has shaped your own. Okay, well, that's another big question. Um, <laughs> first of all, growing up with an artist as a father is, is going to have an influence. Um, plus moving from a sheep farm in Australia uh, where he, he he was a sheep farmer there as a young man. Um, and to see uh, the courage and commitment to do that, to, to move from Australia to, to England to become a, a sculptor. So, yes, I mean, that inevitably has shaped me. Um, it, it, uh, it demonstrated the importance of art in my life and its place in the world and, and how to achieve that. So... Um, it, it rubbed off to the extent that uh, I thought, yes, well, it's important and I'm going to have a go at it. So, I mean, <clears throat> it, um, it is a, it is, is a, a long story and um, I think it's all about connectivity. I, I am here um, through, through the work of my father and uh, as a co-founder of the foundation and as, as a sculptor. I, I was his apprentice for... 10 years and worked with him and then left uh, his studio to work in my own studio. But we've for, throughout our careers, we, we collaborated on work and we shared and he gave me advice. And, and um, I remember at the beginning, he said um, of the apprenticeship, well, yes, you can, you can come and work with me and I'll tell you all the secrets, but your sculptures have to be different from mine. So uh, that that really was a, a very valuable lesson and it helped me establish myself as my own my own artist and uh, and yet uh, we were able to work together. So and then I think you know with his work with the foundation I became involved in that at a certain point when um, we were taking a cast of the Dabus giraffes in the in the Sahara which we'll come on to later but um, my experience in the foundry uh, got me involved in the foundation and I became the project controller for that. And then one thing led to another. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer, really. But, um, you know, that's the, that's the uh, nuts and bolts of it. Well, it's fascinating because I think um, it sounds as though you're describing kind of the best of both worlds to have someone uh, to, who inspires you that you'd like to emulate, but also to individuate and, and be your own person and be encouraged to do that. Um, exactly. So that's, a pretty, that's well put, yes. And and that's, that's quite a legacy uh, because I think, you know, so often uh, that kind of balance is is difficult to achieve in families um and um you know as you as you said um you know he had a career as a sheep farmer in australia before discovering his calling as a sculptor uh while in his 30s and in your mid-30s um you were elected into the royal society of british sculptors and I'm curious about how, you know, knowing from a young age that you wanted a career in the arts 
influenced your life in terms of your choices and priorities? Because a lot of people don't have that clarity. Well, I didn't really have that clarity until, until much later on. I didn't know I wanted a career in the arts until I was uh, in my 20s, I suppose. Um, and I didn't realize that a career as a sculptor would lead to a role in the Bradshaw Foundation working with rock art specialists and archaeologists. Like I say, one thing led to another, and <clears throat> it, it's all about connectivity. In terms of choices and priorities, Meg, I mean, for me, I think it's a classic case of striking a balance between creating a, a well-thought-out strategy and trusting one one's in, in, intuition in order to reach a goal. So it's not a it's not a predetermined and exact goal because as we know a, a certain mind is a closed mind but um one thing led to another and and here we are it's been a privilege to have worked with my father and and you're right in saying that it, it doesn't always work it's also been a privilege to continue his work with the Bradshaw foundation so it's this is where we are Right. And I, I also think, um, you know, I so appreciate uh, that life is a, is a continuum and, you know, that things do fall into place, um, you know, uh, maybe not exactly as you might plan. Um, and um, the intersection of, um, you know, your and your father's careers as sculptors and the Bradshaw Foundation and its um, focus on preserving uh, rock art is, is kind of an interesting intersection. And the predominant theme of your art is the female figure yeah. um, reduced to the essential. And your father's work included both figurative and symbolic pieces. And the Bradshaw Foundation, Foundation website points out that from prehistory to today, the themes and motifs embedded in the foundations of ancient rock art are still being employed by contemporary artists around the world. So I'm wondering if you can comment on your art and your father's art in that context. Uh, absolutely. <clears throat> this is one of my favorite subjects because it, it all points to the legacy of art and the content, continuum of art. Um, again, I'm going to um, use the, the starting point is, is rock art because that is the first art. Um, there, I, th I think there is a shared human experience between the past and the present. Um, an archaeologist, for example, uses his or own, her own experience of being human to unlock an understanding of what, is, what it is to be uh, one of our ancestors. For example, excavating a hearth is not just a mechanical process, it's, it's an emotional one as well. So, you know, the archaeologist is there um, imagining the thoughts of the original occupants of that hearth. They're not just digging up the hearth, they're imagining the conversations that went on around that hearth. In other words, it's the shared human experience brings the situation to life. So in my experience, this applies to rock art as well. Walking when I when I ever I go into a deep cave and I look up at a cave painting, it, it summons the ancestors, or, or to put it more accurately, it summons the original artists. So studying rock art is not just a mechanical or an intellectual process. It's an emotional one. Um, I think the really fascinating thing is that historically, artists have tended to be inspired by preceding artistic movements. 
So art is always a reaction to what has gone before. It's it's either building on it or it's developing it, or sometimes it dismisses it, dismisses it completely. But uh, you have to remember that the prehistoric artists, there were no precedents. Uh, there were artistic mm. traditions, uh, long ones. But, you know, my question as a contemporary artist is what was the source of the initial inspiration? So... <clears throat> um, <laughs> At that level, the Paleolithic art really offers us the first visible sign of of modern human consciousness, of self-awareness. Now, this might be human instinct or it might be a a neuroscientific phenomenon. It could be soul music or it could be an organic algorithm. We don't really know, but whichever way you look at it, the prehistoric artist was able to visualize the result of the work in advance and also to possess an understanding of the sense of aesthetic perception. So um, this made me look at my own work, my uh, female figurines. As you uh, mentioned, they um, attempt to capture the feminine spirit. So while, while the sculptures correspond to a classical theme, style is a reduction to essentials. So I am seeking the origin, the, the origin of the female spirit so it and and this takes place with an expressionist style which basically means that the emotional pitch of my work is is produced by uh omissions and distortions and exaggerations so um the the inner attributes are come through instead of the outer attributes i'm enjoying i'm employing the the um the sensually suggestive capacities of the line and and the whole is resolved in a harmony. Um, so the overall effect, I hope, is is to create a, an absoluteness. The sculpture speaks uh, only to itself, only to herself. She is self-contained. She is luxuriant. Now, the interesting thing about comparing the work of a contemporary artist with a Paleolithic artist is that what I have just been talking about, I could have been talking about any one of the Paleolithic sculptures that are found across Europe. Uh, these are some of the earliest artworks known, and the lines, the exaggerations, the distortions, the the inner attributes, that is exactly what the the Paleolithic artists were creating with their sculptures. The, and you must bear in mind that these sculptures were created long before the paintings. It was... Um, some of the earliest uh, manifestation of art. So this is what I mean about the recurring themes and motifs in art. Right. And I'm so struck when you said that, um, that the emotional pitch is created by the omissions and the exaggerations. And, you know, isn't that true of our inner state and our, our inner, you know, emotional, um, Essence, you know, I, I remember hearing a quote once that um, truth is simply whatever we can bring ourselves to believe. And, um, you know, our emotional lives are shaped by what we exaggerate and, and what we overlook. And so, you know, both in terms of rock art and your art, um, you know, that's a very interesting way to look at it. It is. It is. I mean, the exaggerations are sort of, they're not going, they're not going off piste. They're, they're not uh, <clears throat> getting away from the subject. It's just that they are, 
emphasizing what I'm trying to do is to emphasize the important lines and, and leave out the, the lines that are not as important. So right. you are you're not creating a, a non-truth. You're you're just emphasizing the the essence. That is the, that is the word. It's it's a quintessential um, search, I suppose. Right. Yes, and I didn't mean to imply that something was an untruth, but you know, your truth at the time is is you know is the truth. Um, but in any event, um, yes. The, we could, we could we could delve into this for for hours. So we could. Um, let me carry on. Um, the foundation's primary objective is to discover, document, and preserve ancient rock art around the world, and promote the study of early mankind's artistic achievements. And the the tagline of the Bradshaw Foundation's website is "Exploring Our Past, Informing Our Future." And you've kind of alluded to this, but can you talk broadly about the foundation's work in that context? Well, it, it goes back to what I was saying about you know keeping keeping the rock art or the first art in the human zeitgeist. Um, in so exploring our past that that makes sense. Informing our future, I mean that's it's always the future generation that can t- take things a step further, to take things uh, in the right direction and a step further, I think. Um, so the Bradshaw Foundation, you know, while we provide a, an online resource or a platform for research into rock art and archaeology and anthropology and genetic research, it it is, uh, it is reaching out to a younger audience, we hope, um, in order to get that that important message across. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think uh, I think it is important, and I do think certainly, um, you know, communicating digitally is is a way to um, you know reach a broad audience and a and a young audience. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the rock art that the Bradshaw Foundation has sought to preserve. And I thought perhaps we could start with the Australian rock art archive, and in particular, the Bradshaw paintings from which the foundation gets its name. And I'm wondering if you could share an overview of this art and the Kimberley region. Absolutely. Well, uh, the, the Bradshaw Foundation's Australian rock art archive currently focuses on the, the rock art of the Kimberley region which features the Guion Guion rock art, which is also known as the Bradshaw, as the Bradshaw paintings, and the Wanjana rock art. So uh, the, the interesting thing about, we think, about the Guion Guion rock art is it's claimed to be the earliest figurative art in the world. So let me explain that. Um, 65,000 years ago, our ancestors crossed by boats in groups from Timor into Australia. Um, this is based on the work of Stephen Oppenheimer from Oxford University and his genetic research, um, which is the basis of his book, Out of Eden. In the United States, it's called The Real Eve. But the, the book is based on uh, the out of Africa theory of human origins, which where he traces the migration of anatomically modern humans out of Africa 85,000 years ago. So here we are, we've, we've uh, <clears throat> once on land in, in what is now called Australia, some members of the groups that first hit the shore were assigned the task of recording their, their beliefs, their hopes, uh, their fears on, by painting on the rocks. 
And if that is the case, so we, we know the time that uh, these, these uh, groups arrived, that would make the cave paintings of the Kimberley region of northwestern Australia some of the earliest figurative paintings ever produced. Um, but, and there are thousands. I mean, the, it's, it's estimated that there are 100,000 um, rock art sites in, in wow. the Kimberley alone, I know, and only a fraction of those have been recorded. So, but uh, there is rock art all over Australia and there is some great research going on there. Um, and uh, we're involved with a lot of these re- rock art researchers. But um, with the Bradshaw Foundation and, and the Kimberley, I mean, our involvement goes f- further back and it's, it's a fun little story which I'll share with you. I mean, in 1955, my, my father, John Robinson, I mentioned the sheep farming episode uh, earlier at this time in 1955 he was a jackaroo which is a, a sort of young a cowboy herding cattle he was cattle droving in the Kimberley region and quite by chance he came across uh, a certain individual called Dr. Andreas Lommel he was an anthropologist from the Frobenius Institute in Germany and he was there recording the Guion Guion and Wangina paintings so here we have a young jackaroo from England and the older anthropologist from Germany spending hours discussing art and culture in this remote area of Australia. So, so this really was the seed of inspiration for my father. And he was, um, so then he went, uh, went to, went on to, to uh, work a sheep farm and then came over to England, but still he had this fascination for the, for the, for the mysterious paintings in in the Kimberley. So a few expeditions followed on from that. And in 1981, I was able to join him. Um, We were actually in search of a a rare species of lily called Borea subulata, um, which only grows in the Kimberley. So we were looking for that uh, for the Melbourne Herbarium and, and actually found it extraordinarily. But while we were on the expedition, we were uh, immersed in, in the, fantastic rock art so so that sort of kept the flame alive and then uh, f- subsequent expeditions followed uh, for example with Damon de Laszlo and Robert Hefner III who would become uh, founding members of the foundation and um, so the the foundation was formed and here we are today so um, yes it's it's what a, a story it's, it's a great it's, story and it just came about through a sort of an early introduction i mean you can imagine sort of john john robinson the young jackaroo coming across a a german professor studying these and and um and then long conversations followed and and that was the seed and uh now here we are so (laughs) yes well it's one of those intersections one of those points of connection that you referred to earlier and you know uh look what it led to. Um, now, I'm wondering if you could just very briefly describe the Kimberley region, you know, for people that aren't familiar with it. I've, you've painted a, a wonderfully evocative picture of this encounter, but I'd love to understand a little bit more about the uh, the landscape. Landscape, it's a very remote place. I mean, the Kimberley is the size of California, I think, in, in terms of oh. size, but uh, it's very remote. It's very hot, uh, but it has a, a dry season and a wet season. In the wet season, you, it's very inaccessible. Um, and it's just f- created by full of these 
big, wonderful red, rocky landscapes. Um, and yes, I mean, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing landscape. It's remote, but it's beautiful. Mm. And that is one of the reasons why the, 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 the Guion Guion paintings have, have survived. Uh, the rock art sites are intact because of the remoteness of the region. Right. Um, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, now moving on, um, the Chauvet cave is one of the most famous prehistoric rock art sites in the world. Can you describe the art in this cave and its significance and possible meanings? The significance of Chauvet. Yes. Uh, it, 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 it turned, turned the rock art world upside down, really. Um, the, the significance is, I think it can be fairly easily summarized. Firstly, the age. Um, there were two major periods of occupation, the Aurignacian period about 32,000 years ago and the Gravettian about 26,000 years ago. Um, so the, the cave provides an artistic legacy which, which represented a, a, an overall belief system uh, which persisted with very little change for, for uh, over 20 millennia and, and only ending um, when the Ice Age finally drew to a close. So it's, wow. it's, it's, it's super old. Um, mm. The secondly, the, the significance of Chauvet, it, it dramatically just disproved any contention that our human artistic capabilities had evolved over time from a simple form to a complex form. You know, the, the idea that um, early art was naive art. Basically, with Chauvet, what that proved, and on, only after the... Um, carbon dating came back, you know, in the early 90s, it proved that when art first appeared, it appeared full blown in a, in a technically and aesthetically sophisticated fashion. So, wow. yeah, exactly. So um, how did that happen? How did art begin in such a, a sort of technically and aesthetically sophisticated way? That is, that is, um, extraordinary it's extraordinary for rock art researchers it's, it's extraordinary for archaeologists and anthropologists it's, it's it's also extraordinary for contemporary artists some of the some of the uh, the animals depicted uh, are not simply realistic depictions they are going back to what i was saying about my work which is uh, slightly stylized um and and exaggerated in order to capture the essence of a bear or a lion or a horse that's what's going on already with the the paintings uh 32 that's amazing it is amazing isn't it so so i think that's that's important about chauvet and i think the the third great thing about chauvet is um the the archaeological context of the cave is what what um archaeologists call pristine that's because the collapse of the cliff um, sealed the prehistoric entrance. So the art and the artifacts and the bare skulls that are inside were, were not seen nor touched for a very long time. Um, now, can I ask you, Peter, for listeners, can you describe the site? I can, actually, Meg, because I've been into Chauvet. I've been fortunate ah. enough to, to go in, and um, and it's quite extraordinary. You you, so the first thing you notice is um, once you've gone through the steel door because it's it's locked. Only only uh, a few, a few scientists go in to study the art. 
and there are steel walkways so that you don't walk on the cave floor. Um, it's a it's a pristine it's remains a pristine environment, but it's it's being scientifically um, documented. So you walk, the first thing you, I noticed was the the um, the quartz uh, crystals and the the stalactites and and the stalactites. It's a it's a dazzling display of geology. And then the then you notice the deliciously sensual um, cave walls. It's just because obviously it's been created by water. Um, it's a very sensual place. So it's it's not hard to imagine walking in with a flickering flame um, to into this extraordinary world and in which you would create these extraordinary paintings um uh, yeah that's that's Chauvet and it, it's 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 also very extensive so you are underground for a long time and so you there's a lack, lack of um oxygen so you do get a sort of slightly heady feeling while you're walking through this maze of of um of sensuous rock Coming, coming across every now and then small galleries of uh, extraordinary paintings. And every painting you see is, is beautiful. There are no mistakes. There are no errors. Um, every work of art was considered and executed with a, a practiced hand. So it's, uh, it's yeah, it's, 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 it's quite a place. It's, it's unique. Um, it's there are other fantastic uh, caves in Europe with with rock art, and you know it's it's wrong to compare different rock art sites, but but Chauvet is is very special, uh, and a lot of work has been done there. So uh, the French the French are great at studying the 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 rock art itself. They're reluctant to give meaning to the rock art, um, and I think this this relates to the sort of the dangers of interpreting. Um, the, this Paleolithic artistic legacy—it's—it's it's contentious. Uh, we're, we're always tempted to do it, um, to try and track down the or understand the earliest examples of symbolic expression. But it, it is a—it is a dangerous, dangerous area. For example, what we see today is not necessarily what our Paleolithic ancestors saw. Um, was the lion painted on the cave wall representational, or was it conceptual? We don't know. Um, and, and what we do know from the study of rock art around the world is that it has a multiplicity of meanings. Um, the art may have been an affirmation of a presence or marking a boundary, or it, it may be a, a, a testimony to a belief or a practice uh, of, for example, a creation myth. Um, it may have been used for initiation ceremonies. Um, it may have been the paintings may have been um, used to influence the world around the uh, Paleolithic ancestors. Um, there, there are a number of things. The, the extraordinary thing about Chauvet is that um, with all of the art, all of the fantastic art, there are very few human figures. So that has everybody scratching their head. Why, why were the, why were the artists not depicting humans in this in this gallery of art? Um, we don't really know. There may have been a taboo about that. Um, there may, there, it may, I've heard um, rock art researchers say it was because 
at that time, there were just not many people. It wasn't really part of the consciousness. We would have been surrounded by bears and lions and, and rhinoceros and mammoth and, and just a, a huge number of animals. And we were a tiny, tiny fraction of the, of the, um, of the population. So it, we didn't really figure in the sort of, in the artistic um, presence that, that may be the case. Um, but my, my final feeling about Chauvet, I think, you know, it's spectacular, it's old, it's pristine. I think the most important thing about Chauvet is that it, it proves that there um, is certainly more art to be rediscovered. Um, Chauvet was discovered in 1994. So, um, you know, w- what else is, is waiting to be rediscovered? Uh, and I'll give you an example, Meg. Um, in Recently in Indonesia, some rock art was discovered, which has proved to be 40,000 years old, older than Chauvet. So, mm. so that, you know, that tells us either that um, art was, was a much older behavior than we first thought, brought, to, brought by the first humans into Europe and Southeast Asia, or it suggests that um, art was independently invented. In, in various parts of the world. So it didn't all begin in Europe. Um, art art is, it goes back to what we were saying right at the beginning. We are hardwired to culture. We are hardwired to art, to create art. It's part of our makeup. Right. Well, I mean, you've just said so many things, and I am uh, just so intrigued by the idea that art manifested in its earliest form, you know, full blown and going from zero to, you know, a hundred and, and just how that could have happened. Um, But I also appreciate your point that, um, you know, even the most well-grounded theories are just speculation and, um, you know, part of the appeal, I think, of rock art is that it does uh, conjure up all these questions, um, and yet it's such a mystery. Um, exactly. Yes, that's the thing, and that's that's why we have to look after it. That's why we have to preserve it because we don't know the we don't know the meaning of it, and and we we know the meanings vary around the world. We know meanings vary over time. But until we have decoded the, this this first art, I think it's worth looking after. Absolutely. Mm. And that leads to my next question, which is, what are the challenges associated with preserving rock art? Um, you know, I imagine creating the preservative infrastructure, such as at uh, Chauvet, there's, there's certainly a cost element to the whole thing. But could you talk generally about about What's involved in preserving it? Well, <clears throat> yes, preserving it's, it's such a big issue. Preserving rock art, and I always I always um, think about this when I come across a, an article in the newspapers, sort of the weekend paper, saying um, uh, here's an article on all the secret beaches of, of uh, Great Britain. Well, they're not secret anymore. Um, right. When when we inform the public of this great artistic resource the natural instinct is to experience it for ourselves and this can lead to damage so that that is the that is the sort of two-way pressure that that is ongoing Uh, but with this constant battle one of our best tools of preservation we believe is awareness um 
if if people are aware of the importance of the art, then it, it's going to help. I was in a in a, um, a rock art site in California recently, and it's just an amazing place and uh, an amazing rock structure which you walk into, and it's a sort of a natural a natural bowl. And the walls would have been originally just a, a sort of a Sistine Chapel of of color and symbolism and power and potency. And I would say about fifteen, no, ten percent of the paintings remain. The rest have been knocked off or or graffitied or you know it's it's just it's a, it's a great shame. And that's because um, in in the you know, uh, early early twentieth century, there there were not the sort of um, there was there was not the awareness of preservation that there is now. So, it's it's a shame. I mean, you you get various degrees of preservation. Um, you have the the closure, such as Chauvet, which is locked off. Um, you also get the sort of guided access, uh, where where guides take you to the rock art site and tell you where to walk and where not to walk and you you have um rock art, rock art sites which have uh, boardwalks and and interpretive panels so you could you can't actually touch the touch the art i think that's a, a great way of doing it you also have uh, another form of preservation is remoteness many of the rock art sites that i've visited have been incredibly remote like the Bradshaw, um, like the Kimberley region that I was telling you about with the Guion paintings. And and sometimes you get uh, rock art sites on private land. Often in the States, there are rock art sites on land that is owned privately. So that, that gives a, a, a balance to, it helps preserve the art, but it's all about, it's all about finding the balance and, and, I, I think our role, the foundation's role, is to provide the awareness. Um, I'll come on to this later. But if people are aware of the, the resource, then it will be respected. Um, I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, it's also interesting just to think about um, how I believe, um, you know, over time, people have become in some respects, maybe even more reverential about the past and, you know, really have a, have a greater appreciation for deep history. And I myself visited some, a, a site of some um, petroglyphs in uh, Arizona. And mm. it was just, I was able, I was by myself and I walked across this field and I, I came to the site and I was the only one there. And, um, you know, I had this tremendous sense of, um, you know, identification with a lot of the images that I saw, mm. but I also felt like um, I had a sense of how time yep. was probably different for the people creating that art, um, you know, versus what the dimension of time means to us now. I know it's such a mind bender, isn't it? What is going on with time? You know, there's a, I've just read cloud Atlas and that's a sort of sums it up, you know, the, the souls across time, you know, you would have felt the connection, but you would have felt remote as well. So, right. Exactly. Yeah. It's bizarre, isn't it? Mm. Um, but it, I must also emphasize that, that the rock art is, uh, it's not a, it's not an ancient, out of reach 
um, resource. It's it's a preservation of rock art sites around the world must also involve um, native populations and in, indigenous beliefs. Um, because and you know we must work with their affiliations and cultural connections to the art. So it's it's uh, it's not a dusty relic. It's it's a, an active living portal for many many people in many countries. So. It's not a. Right, do you that's see what a good I mean? Point. It's not. Yeah, it's not a, a sort of a, a thing that can be put in a museum. So. Right. Right. That, that yes, I mean, that. in different cultures, you know, um, I mean, some of the cultures are extinct, but some of them are not. Um, exactly. And, right. Yeah. Now, I'd like to ask about Scandinavian rock art, which until looking at the Bradshaw Foundation site, I I hadn't really fully, I guess had an awareness that there was Scandinavian rock art. And yep. so my question to you is, um, or my questions, um, can it be characterized and can you address whether there are discernible differences um, and or commonalities in the rock art from different eras and locations? And, you know, is there a way to clearly distinguish art from different time periods in different parts of the world. I mean, you have kind of touched on this and I know that you've said comparing isn't, you know, appropriate, but I'm just curious about whether, you know, if you were to see a piece of, of Scandinavian rock art uh, that was not in mm. situ, would you be able to say, oh, that's, that's Scandinavian? <clears throat> yes and no. Um, again, you know, there, there is a distinctive style in Scandinavia um, for the rock art. Uh, it is younger than the, the rock art of Europe because of the, um, uh, because of the, the Ice Age uh, and habitable environments. Let's not forget, at this time, um, climate was our greatest enemy and sternest teacher. You know, the Ice Age was um, only freed Scandinavia relatively recently i mean 6000 7000 years ago so the the art has a certain style which you could you could sort of put down to that that particular age it also has a sort of clear clean preciseness about it but other than that you can't really i mean there are there are common motifs um found in in scandinavia which you find all over the world so um you know, for example, you have humans, you have hunting scenes, you have human rituals being depicted, you have boats. Um, there, there are lots of uh, boat motifs in Scandinavia. So it was probably a very, reflecting the maritime mobility and all that sort of thing. But um, other than that, um, you can't really separate it from the from the rest of the from the rest of the world in terms of rock art. Um, it's uh, you know uh, um it's it's hard to do i mean and and what else about scandinavia they they have the petroglyphs on large large panels of um of uh, petroglyphs like at the tannum rock art site in sweden but they also have uh, interesting situations where you just have uh, red paint daubed onto the rock as if as if the the artist was um using the the paint sort of daub as a as a portal perhaps to the spirit world perhaps to the ancestors Ooh. so not a painting as such but just a, a sort of a red mark but again you get that you get that in canada um you you get that all, all over so 
um, it, it's hard to distinguish or separate the rock art of Scandinavia, I think, from from uh, other rock art sites around the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's a segue to my next question, which is I, I hadn't realized, although I guess it makes sense, obviously, that Scandinavian rock art is is newer Mm-hmm. Uh, relatively, yeah. let's let's turn to the world's oldest rock art, which is in mm-hmm. Africa. And yeah. can you give an overview um, of the history and the meaning of uh, the art there? Um, I mean, I know we've talked about meaning being difficult to gauge, but yeah, well, yes. So, so we must bear that in mind. We must also realize that um, I think the starting point for Africa. Africa is a, a sort of section un, unto itself. It, it's where we all originated. Um, and I've already touched on the fact that some early European archaeologists and anthropologists held that Europeans were the first to learn to paint, to carve, and develop complex culture, um, almost as if Europeans represented a, a major biological advance. But, uh, you know, the work of Stephen Oppenheimer would, would deny that. Um, and the genetic tree den- denies that. So we know that humans came out of um, Africa dancing, singing, and painting. But as to the art itself, that is that is a, a difficult situation. One, because the, the oldest rock art may not have survived. And two, some of the rock art in, in Africa is impossible to date. Dating rock art, after going back before a certain point, is, is certainly an issue. So... We, we we need to develop dating methods for incredibly old rock art. We need also to to rediscover the art, um, and that is happening. You know, a lot of work is being done, um, and the work that we we know about the the art that we know about is is um, is fantastic. It's varied. It's it's all over Africa. Um, it's just that we can't pinpoint the date. So. Now, why is that, Peter? Is that um... just because the the dating methods are uh, not capable of recording uh, art, or, for example, the carbon dating of charcoal after after or before a certain date? So um, that is impossible. But having said that, there are there are ways that we can prove the the importance of Africa, such as the um, Blombos cave with the um, the ochre would decorated with delicate geometric patterns. You, you've heard about that. So that is, um, I think that's dated to seventy-seven thousand years years old. Um, mm. Some say it's some say it's older. But if you have dates like that, um, uh, then you're looking at some some early evidence of of art in in Africa. I mean the the Blombos um, situation. They they they. So they've discovered the ochre, but they've also discovered a sort of what they believe to be a hundred thousand year old paint workshop where abalone shells were were used to as containers to store um, paint, and and uh, the, they were heated up to for the for, for some sort of um, pigmented compound. So you know the research is ongoing in Africa and is turning up all sorts of fantastic things. Um, it's just a question of, of uh, confirming the date. That is the that is the trick. 
Uh-huh. That sounds fascinating that there was a workshop. I mean, and, and I know, isn't it great? Very cool. And that, that uh, has been proved by the, you know, the, the archaeological excavations. So they know where, where it was buried and they can prove that. So, yeah, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, the implications of that, um, you know, I mean, I know we, we can't know, it's unknowable, but that, that to me says, you know, that there was a market, um, you know, in, in some respect, um, you know, if you had a dedicated site um, for the production. Yeah. Um, now, um, Africa is also home to the largest known rock art in the world, which are two life-size giraffe petroglyphs uh, known as the uh, Dabu giraffe. Yes. Can you talk about these and what the, they tell us? Yes, the Dabu giraffe. But before I do that, Meg, I'm just going to you. You mentioned the in the previous um, minute uh, there was a market. There is the the um, in Europe, the um, Lion Man from uh, discovered in Germany. It's a it's a half half. It's a human figure with a lion's head, and um, they've estimated that uh, it would have taken somebody about four months to to create this carve it from a mammoth ivory, and uh, four months to do this in a hunter gatherer society. So somebody would have said, "You go and carve this. I will get." food for you i will take care of everything else for you so there was a market for art there was time for art and it was it was it was therefore not art for art's sake it was it was there was a definite purpose for the art and uh it was taken very seriously so that is so significant and that segues into the deboost giraffe because here you have the I think it's the world's largest known animal petroglyph or carving in the world. You have two life-size giraffes side by side, a male and a female, in a on top of an outcrop, sandstone outcrop, in the middle of nowhere in the in the Sahara. And um, so, a lot of work, painstaking work, would have gone into this. This is in the Stone Age, stone tools. Um, you can see pictures of it on the on the Bradshaw website. And uh, you you have to ask yourself why why was this created, uh, and what does it tell us? I mean, it tells us, I think, first of all, that the Sahara was much much greener. Right. Um, uh, it also tells us that because of the scale and execution of the carving, it, it had great significance to the people. But why did they choose the giraffe? Why why the giraffe motif? We we don't know. I mean. The giraffe is a, an extraordinary animal. There's no other animal like it. It has a, a speed and ferociousness and self-defense that belies its unhurried gait. But um, was it apparently the giraffe? The giraffe has amazing eyesight, so uh, it can sort of see beyond scent or sound. And, and this probably would have would not have gone unnoticed. Um, and and it might be, become a metaphor for foresight and prediction. So if if a sort of if a group's shaman or priest could could uh, utilize this this uh, knowledge um, or whatever, uh, it could be it could have great influence. So and the other thing about um, the Jabus giraffes is it's 
it's a beautifully stylized giraffe, but out of the mouth of each giraffe, there's a line coming down with a tiny human figure at the, at the end of the line. So maybe there's some, some sort of connection going on. But I mean, the, the Debus giraffe are, are exquisite, but it's one of many fantastic works of art in the Sahara. There, there are beautiful rock art in, in, in Niger as well as Algeria. Uh, Chad has some amazing, amazing paintings. Libya too. So, again, it it shows the 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 importance of rock art in Africa. They're not as old as the the Debus drafts. I think we uh, are looking at about seven thousand years old. So, ah. um, yeah, I mean it's way before the pyramids. It's it's ancient ancient work, but um, um, you know. There, there is fantastic rock art all over Africa, and uh, many, many, uh, much, much excellent research is is being carried out. Mm. Now, the foundation also has an interest in the people of Africa today. Um, among those being the Turig people, um, one of whom is the subject of one of your paintings. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Turigs and their history and their society? I can't talk in great depth. Um, all I know really is the the fantastic um, help they were when we were taking the mold of the Dabus giraffes. Um, so uh, they are the the current custodians of the Dabus giraffes in in the in Niger, and um, the, the, you know that's all I really know, Meg. I mean, no one really knows the true true origin of the Tuareg. Um, where they came from or when they arrived in the Sahara, but um, they they have survived for thousands of years, these blue men of the Sahara. Um, now, uh, can you explain the blue men for, yes, li- for listeners that, is, that aren't familiar with? That is the, the, the striking attribute is their, their indigo veil, um, which is actually worn by the men, not the women. Um, the men cover up, the women don't. The women are... are beautifully adorned in in jewelry and and it's it's a sort of um it's unusual for for um uh a situation where often the the women are covered and and the men not so with the tuareg it's the other way around and so the the indigo veils uh hence the name um the blue men of the sahara or or i think they're called men of the veil so Mm. Uh, that is the idea behind that. So I was when I was there, working on the Dabus project. Um, I received my indigo veil, and oh. um, I don't wear it as often as I should. But, um, <laughs> That's great. So you felt welcomed. I felt very welcomed. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Now um, I want to uh, touch on um, something that you've referred to a few times, and and. Uh, uh, that's the work of Stephen Oppenheimer. Yes. And um, in 2004, um, the Bradshaw Foundation's website expanded as your father introduced the genetic research of um, Professor Stephen Oppenheimer of Oxford University in order to give the rock art an anthropological context. Mm. Um, and this resulted in the Journey of Mankind Genetic Map an endeavor for which the Bradshaw Foundation received an award from Scientific American uh, for work in the field of anthropology and paleontology. With migration being such a huge issue today, can you share some historical context about the movement of people? 
Well, the historical context, I think that refers to the, the what Stephen Oppenheimer is suggesting, proposing with the, um, the the single successful exit from Africa eighty five thousand years ago. Um, his his work tells us that the male and female genetic trees show only one line coming each coming out of Africa. So so basically, um, you know. The, the group that came out is, is, in essence, the first cultural attaché for modern humans. Um, mm. It proves that cognitive and intellectual mo- modernity were already already on board in Africa before the exodus, which is what we were saying earlier about the the um, the importance of, of research in Africa. And um, it also points to the importance of, of climate. Um, climate is either a, a window of opportunity for example, the the lower sea levels during glaciation means you f- affording further migration, or or it could be a, a slammed door of disaster, where, for example, fertile corridors suddenly turn to desert. This is this is all can be traced now because with with genetics and um, um, yes, it's it's an amazing bit of work. I mean, in terms of migration. It's extraordinary what what goes on on this planet. For example, um, seventy four thousand years ago, uh, Mount Toba exploded, erupted. Uh, it was a massive eruption, and it caused an instant volcanic winter and a thousand year ice age. So th- you can imagine what what that did to the to the global population. Um, mm. Ironically, um, archaeologists now see that. Um, Although although it took us to the point of extinction, um, it it actually hastened the development of prehistoric technology. So, uh, when push comes to shove, you know we we get going. So, um, right. One, we're all migrants, and two, we usually find a solution. That's very optimistic. It, it, I, it's very well said, and it's very optimistic. You have to be. Right. That is so true. Um, Peter, for my last question, um, best cultural destinations tagline is people are culture connecting is the destination. It seems to me that the Bradshaw foundation's work is also about connection. And in closing, I'm wondering if you can share a message with listeners about what connection means to you and how to achieve it. Connection, connection we think is vital. Um, and that that's what drives us for the foundation we 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 hope to the vehicle we use is art so so rock art is our global heritage you can go anywhere in the world and you'll find rock art uh it and it's important because it's it's uh, our artistic legacy it's a legacy from deep time that and it offers us an insight into our ancestors their lives their stories their beliefs their fears um it's only art that enables us to do this, um, enables us to see how our ancestors felt about the world or, or, or how they made sense of the world. Um, so <clears throat> so with this global heritage, we hope to instill public and political awareness of and participation in this, this fragile and, and irreplaceable resource. So... Um, our, our belief is that participation endows ownership, and ownership generates action. Um, 
we, by, by promoting rock art and the preservation of rock art and the awareness of rock art, we are providing knowledge. And with knowledge comes responsibility. So we are giving you knowledge. What are you going to do about it? Right. Well, and, you know, I think the idea to inspire and to issue a call to action to people to carry on um, that legacy and, you know, going back to what you said a moment ago about about hope and optimism. I mean, the very fact that that this art existed and has endured, um, you know, despite how destructive the planet can be and how destructive humans can be is a is a very compelling message. It is, isn't it? And, um, you know, it is a call to arms and we invite people to, to join us by following us on Facebook and Twitter. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an important movement and, uh, Mm. please, please come and join us. Very good. Peter, thank you so much. This has been really, you know, a pleasure and fascinating and an education. And uh, I really appreciate you joining us. Oh, well, thank you for, for inviting me. And you have some great questions and big questions, which take could take hours to answer. So I, I hope I haven't held you up. But um, it, it's, it's a fascinating subject. And uh, let's talk again one day soon. I would love that, Peter. Thank you so much.